The reading today is from Mark 14, 32 through 46. It can be found on page 939 of the Bibles in your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to the disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. He did not know what to say to them. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes our betrayer, my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under your guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. The word of the Lord. I invite you to pray with me as we begin talking about this. Our God of grace, we come to you and we come from different places on the spectrum of belief, on the spectrum of our, our happiness this morning. We come from different stories, different places, different kinds of families, different kinds of marriages, different neighborhoods. And yet the truth is, we come be, when, we're, when we stand before you, when we come into this room, there's a thread that holds us together. Our lives are not perfect. We're more of a mess than we care to admit. We're all in the same boat. We are in need of grace. And we learn from you and from the story in these pages, the meta story, we learned that you move towards broken people. You move towards messy lives. Consistently, over and over, you take on the mess and the brokenness yourself so that we can finally be at home. We're more of a mess than we care to admit, but in Christ we are more loved and accepted than we ever imagined. Speak to us through that kind of grace this morning as we look at this story. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um, every once in a while you need an alarm clock to go off. My alarm was going off while I was standing up here uh, telling me to start the service. Uh, the, earlier this week, I don't know what, I don't know what you do, uh, what your particular addiction is. Uh, like, you know, everybody's got their hobby and their thing they're into, and there's always a way on the internet, on YouTube, you can kind of go crazy and see all these like videos of your nerdy little thing that you're into, you know, like maybe you're into quilting. I don't understand you, but maybe you're into that. 
And, you know, so you go on, how do I do that kind of quilting? You know, I have an aunt who's awesome at quilting. But me, it's, it's a lot of you know this, NBA basketball, right? So I could get lost on just the fact that now, in today's world, you can go on YouTube and find all these old games and just watch them, these classic games, and watch the whole game now. I mean, just what you can learn about these old players that were just people that were talked about when I was a kid, and now I can watch them play. Um, I had nothing like that as a kid growing up, so I can get lost in that at night. And um, So this week there was a night where I was up way too late, and I was watching a highlight reel of Allen Iverson's rookie year. I know, this, none of you care, I know, but... Um, so Allen Iverson's rookie year, and I'm watching, and, and right away this... this, this uh, this hip-hop kind of uh, back music starts playing as he, all these highlights are happening. It's really cool, and it's, so it's like, it's just happening. I don't know. It was something like that. So this beat and this music coming out of these, these bad speakers on my laptop in the living room, and about three or four minutes into the song, into the video, I started, something just didn't feel right about the song. And I, what, what am I hearing? And I, and I muted it. And sure enough, in my, in my kid's room, something had gone wrong with the alarm clock, and their alarm clock was going off. And who knows how many minutes. I think it had been going off, because I had heard that sound. I thought it was wit part of the song for a long time. It was like, and I was like, ooh, that's cool. You know, I just was kind of grooving with it until it mismatched a tiny bit, and I turned the computer off. I go in there, and, and the boys, you know, it's so hard to wake up kids. With, even with alarm clocks, kids sleep so deep, but they were, they were up. It must have been going for a while because they were up just kind of going, oh, what, what is happening? You know, what is going on? Um, alarms, alarm clocks. I don't know when you set yours last, if you even set yours on Sundays, but this passage, this passage functions like a, an alarm clock to us. Um, and not just because you see that the people, some of the main characters are asleep and Jesus is saying, wake up and can't you even you know, stand watch for one hour, can't you stay awake? Not just because they're, they're sleepy, but I think the actual prayer within this story, the lesson in this story, the lesson that the apostles were supposed to be awake to catch is a lesson that flashes at us with neon lights. It's with alarms and bells and whistles. And it has us the opportunity really to wake up to a certain way of praying. I think that's why Jesus was so upset with the apostles. Not because what you might assume reading the story is that, oh, he just felt really sad and needed some emotional support. I think, honestly, he desperately wanted them to hear this prayer. He wanted to hear what he was about to say in prayer on the night when he was betrayed. And they're asleep, not hearing it. He wanted them to hear what I've called uh, one of the advanced prayers that we're looking at during Lent. It's an advanced kind of prayer. It's a deep kind of prayer to pray. It takes boldness and good, strong understanding of who God is to pray this kind of prayer. And so not only was Jesus trying to wake them up, but the story as it was transmitted and then as it, w- it was put down in writing was written in such a way that it would still have these sort of alarm bells with it. Um, one of them is that it does some, some good old-fashioned ancient name-dropping. The Gospels were written, the Gospel of Mark was written in the context of a thriving new church. You know, the movement of Jesus was happening. And they all knew that Peter, James, and John were the big guys, were the guys who were with Jesus. They were the ones who had risen even a little more to, to central leadership that Jesus, Jesus had often called into his inner circle to give them sort of a, a deeper challenge 
of how they might follow him. And so here again, Jesus is calling those three, and it's name-dropped in this story, that they're brought along within audio range of Jesus' prayer. So that's one alarm bell in this story for us to pay attention. Well, what were they supposed to hear? Another alarm bell is just the fact that the prayer is said three times. How often does that happen in, in the Bible, if you read the Bible, that someone prays the exact same prayer three times and that you're told it happened once and then it happened again and then the same prayer was prayed a third time. And in the Bible, of course, the number three is sort of one of those wake-up kind of numbers. It's used often to kind of give that, hey, there's three of this. Pay attention. It happened three times. You know, he rose on the third day. Jonah was in the big fish for three days. You know, there's a lot of times you can find in the Bible. You can think at your own where three days, three days. So it's got these sort of alarm bells even in how it's written. We're supposed to pay attention to it. One of the questions as you come into this is you say, oh, wait a second, Mark. How do we even know what Jesus prayed if they were all asleep. <laughs> Did you ever think about that? <laughs> the story, you wonder that same question? They're all asleep and somehow we still have the story telling us what he said up on that mountain. Well, you know, there's three of them. And it was said three times. Th- last time I checked, three times three is nine. So there's nine opportunities for them to hear. Maybe one of those times, one of them was awake and heard it the last time. I don't know. I don't think it really matters because I think this, this is meant to look like such an important event, this prayer, that I, I can see Jesus coming back after his resurrection and saying, remember that night? You were asleep, but you needed, you, I wanted you to hear what I was praying because there's some rich, deep truths about spirituality and about God that are in this prayer. And so let's look at it from that angle. Three things that you learn in this advanced prayer. Three things that you need in your life. Three, um, three things that the alarm bell kind of wakes up in your life. I've used the letter A prominently in these three. So, mnemonic device. There's a new assumption. There's a new awe. And there's a new anchor. A new assumption. Let's look at that. In verse 36 is where his prayer is, this important prayer that we're supposed to listen to and wake up to. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. I want to start by focusing on that last little part to get this assumption that you need in your your prayer life. Not what I will, but what you will. See, in Jesus' prayer, he's acknowledging that there are two versions of how his story might play out. There's two versions of what might happen, what could happen. There's what in the moment he is wishing with some part of him could be possible. And he's saying, you can do anything. (laughs) I want this. Can this pass? Um, But he's acknowledging at the same time, your will be done. There's two possible outcomes at work. The big assumption to add to your prayer life, if you haven't yet, is that your plan is not synonymous with God's plan. Your plan for God's activity in your life, to put it another way, is misguided much of the time. 
how you think God needs to act. I was talking with a friend this week who is a prayer partner, and we meet once in a while. He's also a pastor, and he was talking through some of the, we were talking through some of the history of his last like 10 years of starting a church, and I, and I said at one point, you know, tongue firmly planted in cheek, um, yeah, God's not very smart the way he's lined up all those things. I would have done it differently. I would have put that better experience right there so that it worked better for your life, you know. God's not very smart. He doesn't listen to me. Um, and that's often how it goes, isn't it? Um, we sometimes approach God with absolute certainty. We approach our lives with absolute certainty. We think this is the best way for it to go. It should go this way. We're sure of it. I'm reminded of like the phase I'm in uh, as a parent with small kids is the, one of the parts of it is you have to know your philosophy on, on screen time. You know, how much does the iPad babysit your kids, right? And, uh, you know, everybody's got a different philosophy on it. Everybody's got a different place they meet on the spectrum, and and you're not supposed to get judgmental about where other people land on that because when you're in this mode, it's about survival, okay? So remember that. (laughs) Don't judge other parents when their kid's doing the iPad, okay? Um, But, I mean, you know, what everybody will agree on I think, in that whole spectrum is this. Don't leave it up to the three-year-old to decide where, what the philosophy is. Why? Because the three-year-old always wants more now and has no part of their brain that says, I should limit this to some degree right now. <laughs> this would be better for my brain development if, Mommy, could you please take it away? I don't want it right now. I don't want to watch that. Right? Nobody, nobody thinks that. Because they, they come with absolute certainty that this now is what I need. Why would you deprive me of this? Well, it's because as a parent I can go online and I can find the study. And, you know, the, the evidence is building, actually. I can look up the Iowa State University study. Some 3,000 children and adolescents from Singapore measured over three years found that children who spent more time playing video games were more impulsive and had more attention problems. You know, you can go on and on and find all these screen time, you know, limit arguments. It's science, right? Three-year-old doesn't know that. Three-year-old can't look that up. I think, isn't that a little bit like us with God? We're sure right now with absolute certainty. That's how I am. Why, why wouldn't you give me this? Why, how can I, I can't imagine that the, the new job wouldn't be what you would want for my happiness. I can't imagine the, new, the spouse I'm looking for for the last 10 years hasn't been put there. I can't imagine that the, the neighborhood that I want to live in, that I'm stuck in this other one, that you wouldn't let me do that, that you would, that you would have me here. That physical health in one way or another that just has been elusive in the last one, two, five years hasn't come. Absolute certainty this would be good. It's sobering to learn. And all, of us have, all of us have to learn it, myself included. It's sobering to learn that basically the, the definition, if you, in the purest sense, the definition of Christian immaturity, if you're a Christian, is to be outraged and terrified of meeting difficulty in your journey. <laughs> And suffering. When we've got a, a New Testament that talks about partaking in the suffering of Christ. And, and 
And usually there's many references in the New Testament as the church was figuring out what it means to follow Jesus where the references to participating in the sufferings of Christ and a lot of times the word rejoice is attached in there somewhere. (laughs) Multiple times. So that I don't know if you've ever heard of Oswald Chambers and his, um, his wonderful little daily devotional called My Utmost for His Highest. He says, if you are going to be used by God, he will take you through a number of experiences. Not very comforting here. Warning. Number of experiences that are not meant for you personally at all. They are designed to make you useful in his hands and to enable you to understand what takes place in the lives of others. Are we partakers of Christ's sufferings, he says? Are we prepared for God to stamp out our personal ambitions? Are we prepared for God to destroy our individual decisions by supernaturally transforming them? It will mean not knowing why God is taking us that way because knowing would make us spiritually proud. We never realize at the time what God is putting us through. We go through it more or less without understanding and suddenly we come to a place of enlightenment and realize God has strengthened me and I didn't even know it. So you just ask, what are your prayers like? There's a slide, actually, that can come up at this point. Lori, I don't know if you want to click ahead to a slide. It takes a while for it to warm up. What are your prayers like? And, you know, I mean, you could dial back even further. Are you praying, I guess? You know, there's still a week left in epic prayer. You can join up and and be a part of it if, if it hasn't gone well so far. Are you praying? What are your prayers like? Are they chock full of your ideas for your life? Of course, of course they are. Nobody's saying they wouldn't be. But can you add to that the assumption? Can you add to all those ideas you have for where your journey goes, the assumption that your ideas a lot of the time are going to be misguided, that you are seeing, like this picture, you're looking at a giant movie screen-sized picture and you're just up close looking at about five or six pixels. And God pulls back like the next slide, you can pull it up, and God sees the whole thing. And he knows what what picture he's painting. He knows what story he's writing with your life. Can you add that assumption from this prayer that even Jesus prays, which boggles my mind as a theological aside, I have no idea how to reconcile the idea of who Jesus is as the Son of God, and yet he's praying this prayer, and he has a different idea than the Father of what my... I can't even begin to explain to you how, how that all works out. So we'll move on to the second point. There's a new assumption, there's a new awe, and there's a new uh, anchor. So let's look at the awe. You know, this, this story is actually a family meeting. This is, you've heard of family meetings. Hey, we've got to have a family meeting, such and such is happening. I don't know if you grew up with family meetings. I, I didn't actually, but I've heard of them. I think we're going to have them in our family as our kids get older. This is the divine family meeting, you know? There's a, there's, a, there's a big thing to talk about here. And Jesus goes up to a mountain, he goes to Gethsemane, and he's going to talk. The son is going to talk to the father. And because this family meeting happens, we end up now going substantially to a deeper layer in this story. Because Jesus is not just modeling, you can take the picture down, um, at this point. Jesus is not just modeling a style of prayer for you. He is yielding to the Father's will on your behalf. And we need to stop and marvel at this and dig into it a little bit and be in awe of it. 
You read this story and you realize, look at this. Look at what it says. In chapter 14, verse 35, going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. He's asking that he can, you know, pass, <laughs> take a pass. <laughs> the suffering that he, know, he has a sense of what he's supposed to go through, what he's about to go through, what Holy Week, what we're going to call Holy Week later on, was going to involve for him. And he's, and he's voicing, can that hour, in the Bible, a lot of times the suffering of Christ is called the hour, his hour. Can the hour pass from me? He's pleading to the Father. He has trust that the Father... With, all, with him, all things are possible. He's throwing it to the Father in this family meeting. And before this story is even done, we see that he's already got his answer. The careful wording of the storyteller says, uh, gives us his quote. Returning a third time, um, he asked, are you still sleeping and resting enough? The hour has come. He's already got his answer. Can we puzzle with that? Can we look into that and consider the son asks the father, can the hour be passed? And, right, and he gets right away, he knows, no. This is going to be your hour. You're going to go through it. You've got you to wrestle with that. What, what was going on in that conversation? What, what is that family meeting all about? And the answer, only answer you can come to, and, and it's an answer that's present in in all kinds of implicit and explicit ways all throughout the story of the Bible, is that in that family meeting, there were really only two options. One option was that you all here and myself, that you and I ourselves would go to that hour and Jesus would go free from it. And the only other option was that Jesus would enter into the suffering of that hour so that you and I could be free from it. And stand in awe of that. And what exactly are you and I freed from? I know that it's common to say in a general way that Jesus went to the cross on your behalf. That's what Holy Week leads us into and leads us to ponder. But you might not be very moved by the idea of a cross, you, just by the very fact that you don't worry too much day in and day out of going to a cross. So the, the imagery might get a little bit lost on you. You might not get, you know, might not grab you really. But what is going on with the cross? What's happening? Well, the cross really means Jesus goes, Jesus gets abandoned. We can grab hold of that. You ever worry about being abandoned? Jesus, Jesus, has God the Father forget him, in a sense. Jesus going to his hour, going to the cross, means that he's like a child who falls and isn't caught. He lets himself go into this hour, and he's going to be abandoned on your behalf. He's going to be forgotten on your behalf. He's going to fall without someone to catch him on your behalf. And you and I, we might, in, in our spiritual lives, it's very common to wrestle with Oh, is my, because I have faith that's weak or I have lots of doubts and don't have it figured all out, is God going to abandon me? 
because my life has a track record of a lot of imperfect stuff. I am not perfect. In fact, there was that little phase right there that was really not perfect, right? You know, you all have our different stories of how we see that. Because I have these stains and imperfections in my journey, and some of them I'm still wrestling with today, on the way to church this morning, last night, I mean, you name it, it plants these little seeds of doubt. Maybe I'm not good enough to be in the God club. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm going to get pushed aside. Maybe he's going to abandon me. Maybe he's going to turn for me. You know, maybe God's going to write me off the way I've experienced in a couple key parts of my journey being written off. Maybe even by people who are there kind of in my life supposed to be the ones looking out for me, caring for me, regularly written off. Is God going to write me off? Is God going to forget me? Is God going to abandon me? Holy Week is here. If you ever have any thought like that, ever, and if you're honest, I think you do, Holy Week is here to present a glaring, blaring message with bells and whistles that says there's no way in hell God is going to abandon you. There is no way ever God is going to turn from you or abandon you. He's not going to. That was decided long ago on Gethsemane when Jesus said, I'll, I'll experience it. Jesus said, I'll, I'll be abandoned. I'll enter into this abandonment and for being forgotten so that all your life you can live in the confidence and in the knowledge that you are in the embrace of daddy. Of the father of the son who went there for you. And every time you pray, every time you pray is a rehearsal of that truth. Don't let a day go by. And you know how it is when you do let it, if you're a Christian, you, you let a lot of time go by without reflecting on your permanent status in God's embrace, that that is true for you in Christ. Don't let, don't let a day go by. That's why, that's why you enter into prayer and you basically say, my confidence before this God, before this Father, is built on the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus stepped in like an elder brother saying, I'll take it for that younger sibling so that they can stay in your embrace. And that leads into the last point is that there's a new anchor that can come from this prayer. And that I want to just point very briefly to verse 36 where it talks about his prayer, and he starts off with that crucial word, Abba, Abba, Abba. You know, it's an Aramaic word. The New Testament is written in Greek. Aramaic was the common language of Jesus and his followers, first century Jews. They kept that word. That, took a, you know, that takes an intentional effort as the story's transmitted. Why not just say in Greek, father or daddy? And keep the story going that way. And there's several times in the New Testament, this is a loaded word, Abba. And it's loaded because it's one of those words that in Aramaic living, Abba was like the tender word of a parent to their child. Maybe picture tucking them in to bed at night. And the little three-year-old girl says, Abba, can I have a glass of water? And Abba says, of course. Daddy, Papa, 
That's when Jesus goes into his hour, it cements forever your, that that word applies to your relationship with God, that his Abba becomes yours. The tenderness, the safety, and the trust of that. And it's, then that blares at you through Holy Week. This relationship that you have with God, it's a term God wants to hear off your lips. Daddy, Papa. Ernest Hemingway wrote a small, a short story. It might also have been small, but it's um, talked about as a short story called The Capital of the World. And, um, and he starts it this way. It's about a boy named Paco. So he starts the story saying this. Madrid is full of boys named Paco, which is the diminutive of the name Francisco. And there is a Madrid joke about a father who came to Madrid and inserted an advertisement in the personal columns of El Liberal, which said, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. And how a squadron of the Civil Guard had to be called out to disperse the 800 young men who answered the advertisement. I guess the joke translates. You guys giggled a little bit at that. The joke is that, you know, everybody in Madrid is named Paco, but the truth that, is, that this story alludes to is that all of us are searching for someone to say, hey, it's me, Papa. We're all searching for that relationship. It's me, Abba. It's me, Dada. All's forgiven. Come home. Meet me. I want you in my life. That's what Holy Week says to you. You know, one of my favorite preachers, and he's an author and teacher, his name is Tim Keller, and I heard him once say that there's all these books on codependency, and, and in reading all of them, he says, um, they all say that we didn't get the kind of love we need. You know, We needed this, this kind of love through uh, father, mother, sibling, spouse, and we didn't get it because we need this sort of available, accepting, patient, wise, welcoming, someone always committed to our growth. And he says, no wonder we're all such messes. No, there's no one out there like that who can love that completely. He says, when I read those books and they keep saying, oh, this is the kind of love we need. He says, I panic, not thinking of myself. I think of my kids. I can never live up to that standard, the kind of love supposedly we all need. Isn't it interesting? The books say, the culture says, the psychologists say, the problem, the problem is insufficient love. You need someone in your life. You know, someone a kind of uh, dependable replacement parent type person, like a, like a daddy, mommy type person, someone available, always accepting, patient, wise, welcoming, committed to your growth, someone who can put their needs, they're not always obsessed with their needs, they can actually put them aside and serve your needs. Isn't it interesting that we're all, whether you put it in spiritual terms or psychological terms, behavioral or cognitive terms, we're all looking for love. We're all searching for Papa that writes that ad for us. And so often you can acknowledge in your life and in my life, we're looking for love in all the wrong places. We go all kinds of places to look for that. Someone, something to answer that. And Holy Week is saying to you today, here it is. Here's that sufficient love that you won't find anywhere else. See in Holy Week, friends, see Jesus, your elder sibling, yielding his will so that you could live in that kind of love. This week, go to a Monday Thursday service. Monday Thursday service. 
That's what they call the Thursday one in Holy Week. Go to a service and ponder and reflect on your older sibling going there so that you could have his daddy in your life. On Holy Week, go to a Good Friday service. Go to Christ Church on Friday in Davis. Or meet together with four to five people in your home and read through the story of Holy Week, the suffering of Christ. And meditate all week, starting today, on the cup Jesus drank, which anchors your life in place, that the winds and the events and the storms of your life are not going to pull you away from that anchor. They can't. It's permanent. It's secure in Christ. The sufficient love that your heart longs for. No storm can pull you away from that anchor. Through Christ, it's yours forever, friends. It is yours today. It is yours tomorrow. It is yours forever. Hang on to it. Go get it this week. Stay close to it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray. God, stir up our imaginations, our thinking, and our behavior that this week we may find ourselves able to hear the voice of love saying, come home. Your voice calling us through the events that this week talk about. I'm your Father who has come and given all, given my firstborn, so that you all can be welcomed in. May we hear that. May it click for us. May we understand it for our own broken stories. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.